Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 166, Wolfred, the Rogue Archbishop. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Christy, Victoria, and Joshua for signing up already. Hey, members, did you get a cancellation message from Amazon? If you did, don't panic. Everything is okay. I'm trying to get them to write to you and apologize for erroneously sending out those emails, but they don't seem to care so far. But in theory, everything should be all right. If you're concerned about your status, I can check it for you, but you really shouldn't have to worry about it. I'm really sorry about this, and hopefully this will be the last update on this whole mess regarding Amazon. Again, I'm really sorry. We start today with the death. On the 28th of January, 814, Charlemagne died, and the throne was passed to Louis the Pious, his son. The death of Charlemagne was a big deal for early medieval Europe, not just because it meant that we wouldn't have any more passive-aggressive comments about the quality of British wool, or weird tantrums over weddings, or my personal favorite, utter freakouts because an exiled queen thought Louis was hotter than Charlemagne. No, the death of Charlemagne would trigger a series of events that would shake the foundations of Europe, and in turn, impact our story for years to come. That's something we will be keeping our eyes on. In the meantime, though, the growing feud between Mercia and Canterbury was getting worse. We're told that Archbishop Wilfrid and Bishop Wigobert of Sherborne gathered their things and headed to Rome in 814. It's notable that this was a big enough event that the monks writing the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle took a break from their bird-watching and LSD-fueled cloud-watching to comment upon it. They must have seen this trip as quite newsworthy, which shouldn't be surprising. The last time a trip like this was made, we had a major crisis in leadership in the English church, and it resulted in the creation of an entirely new archbishopric of Lichfield. Archbishops from Britain didn't take off to Rome lightly and typically would only do it if a major policy decision was needed, or if there was some sort of out-of-control crisis. So, what could be the issue here? One possible answer can be found in Wolfred's choice of traveling companions. He was headed to Rome with Wigbert, the Bishop of Sherborne. That's significant because Chinahelm controlled the vast estate at Glastonbury, which was in Wigbert's sphere of influence. Now, as we learned last week, it's possible that Chinahelm's son of Conewolf was murdered, and that would have raised serious questions about inheritance. Who would gain Glastonbury upon his death? Would it go to Chinahelm's family? Or would it go to the bishop or archbishop, which is what Wolfrid believes should happen to all religious houses? So, one possible reason for this trip could be regarding Wolfrid's old hobby horse. Land ownership. And if Wolfred and Wigbert demanded the land at Glastonbury, they very well might have needed papal support, because the Mercian royal family was unlikely to give it up. And of course they were. Not just for the reasons we talked about last week, where these properties granted enormous amounts of revenue and power, but also because it looks like Chinahelm was murdered by a Kentish noble who had ties to Wolfred. I don't imagine the mourning Emperor of Mercia would be eager to hand over the property to one of Wolfred's allies. 
This conflict with Mercia had exploded outside the borders of Kent. And now it looks like there was probably a serious question to be answered regarding who would take possession of religious properties after the death of its secular rulers. Adding fuel to the fire, Wolfred also really, really wanted the highly affluent Kentish property of Minster and Thanet. And Minster and Thanet was currently controlled by a Mercian noble. And it looks like Wolfred was more than a little annoyed about that. So, if Conewolf wouldn't back down and just give him Minster and Thanet, that might have been another reason for why Wolfred wanted to speak to the Pope. So, Wolfred and Wigabert went on a road trip to Rome. And Pope Leo III tried his best to mediate the issue. And in March of 815, they returned to Britain with his blessing. Emperor Conewolf was no fool, so he tried to keep the peace. He wasn't going to kick Abbas Selithrith from her seat of power at Minster and Thanet, but he knew that he couldn't directly challenge the Pope either. So he granted 300 hides of land in Worcester to Wolfred personally, and told the Archbishop that he would gain possession of Minster and Thanet upon the death of the Abbas. No mention, by the way, was made regarding Glastonbury. I'm not sure what happened there. At around the same time, King Egbert of Wessex, remember him? Well, he was still active, and it seems that while Mercia was distracted with religious concerns, Wessex was expanding their holdings and their power base. Naturally, directly challenging Mercia was dangerous right now, considering how much power they were consolidating. But the Brits, well, they were an easier target. So we're told that he led a campaign against the Cornish, and he ravaged the Britons from east to west. But the real action was happening in the early days of 816. Because Abbas Selithrith, the Mercian noble who controlled the rich property of Minster and Thanet, died. And when she died, the Minster didn't pass to Archbishop Wolfred, as was promised. Instead, it went to Quenthrith, daughter of Conewulf. This enraged the Archbishop. He had been trying to wrestle the Kentish houses from Conewulf's control, and here the emperor was giving the minster to his own daughter. That was not part of the plan at all. And in response, the archbishop formed a great ecclesiastical council to discuss the issue. Now, he couldn't have known this, but this council at Chelsea would be the last of the gatherings that were one of the hallmarks of the mercy and supremacy. These councils were the glue that kept the two institutions, the nobility and the clergy, bound together. From them, we've seen major decisions that shaped English life for generations, and of course, provided common ground to enable the two power structures to work together. But those ties were breaking down. Their interests were increasingly coming into conflict with each other, and after this council, it looks like neither party felt the need to continue holding them. Now, once again, we have a situation that might seem like a conflict between some dusty old men over minor matters. But when we look into it, we see that it's shaping the culture and the form of English life. It might make a lot more sense to think about these councils as an effort to find peace between an open government and the shadow government. Even the driest of these councils were important, but this one was a doozy. As it opened, the Archbishop attacked the Emperor for allowing lay control of religious houses. 
While this was nothing new for Britain, Archbishop Wolfrid was looking to change the relationship that the church had with the nobility and the lay people of his diocese. Specifically, he asked the council to extend the power of the bishops over the monasteries in their diocese, even though they had previously been independent from the bishops' authority. The bishops, naturally, were quite fond of this idea. The monks, however, were less enthusiastic. But their concerns were ignored, and the council granted Wolfrid's request. They even went one step farther, and they gave the bishops the power to elect abbots and abbesses, and also the right to take control of monastic properties if they were under threat by greedy secular rulers. Think about what that means. Based upon the council's rule, the bishops can now toss out abbesses and abbots that they didn't like. Monasteries would now be subject to bishopric rule. Not only that, but secular rulers like Conewulf's own daughter could find themselves evicted from their properties, often so that the bishops could move in and claim the estates themselves. This ruffled more than a few feathers. Especially Conewulf's feathers, since Wolfred wasn't shy about pointing fingers. Quote, if the monastic rules cannot remain thus inviolate on account of the penury caused by the rapacity of secular men, we will adjudicate a right for the bishop with his authority to defend the flock of Christ, rather than abandon it to the ravening jaws of wolves." End quote. The ravening jaws of wolves he was talking about were cone wolves, and everybody there would have known it. Cone wolf's name means keen wolf. He might as well have just said, that son of a bitch over there, he's the devil. A statement like that was, well, daring. And he might have been trying to protect his flank by taking on a Carolingian tone. And that would explain why many of his arguments do seem remarkably frankish, with an emphasis on rights and duties of the clergy. And he even goes so far as to condemn the Irish church due to their lack of an ecclesiastical government. Basically, the Irish were condemned for not being organized the way the English clergy was. It's an odd side comment, but those are the sorts of interests that the Carolingian courts were known for, and consequently, I suspect he was adopting a posture that would have looked similar to how the Franks would have handled the council. But why? Well, it's likely that Wolfred knew that he was overreaching. And so he was doing his best to look like Emperor Louis the Pious and the Frankish Empire as a way to kind of bolster his position. Honestly, this was the political equivalent of hurling insults while standing behind your older sibling for protection. However, Wolfred's attack on lay control of monasteries and nunneries went even farther than the Franks did. Wolfred was out on a limb, and he was actually in opposition to canonical norms. And while it might have made him some friends among the English bishops, it annoyed just about everybody else. He was going too far. However, this wasn't a mere power grab by the council, though it was probably that too. But there was a logic behind it, because there were a rash of injustices that were occurring in some monasteries. And that's what many of the members of the council were probably concerned with. The trouble was that the religious houses were being treated as personal property of not just the royal families, but also local lords who exploited them as they saw fit. Some of the monastic communities were incredibly impoverished as a result of the local treatment of the secular rulers. Though, to be fair, 
they did take a vow of poverty, so I'm not sure how much standing they had to complain. But the exploitation wasn't just in terms of money. The lords were also doing things like constructing residences for themselves within the monastic community. You know, because it's quiet and peaceful, and everyone needs a vacation home. Secular rulers were also stripping assets from monasteries and encroaching upon their lands. Brother Cadfail could wake up one morning and discover that the vineyards that had been under the monastery's care for generations were now being harvested by a local alcoholic thane. It really was becoming a problem. In fact, it was so bad that scholars theorized that the exploitation was probably a major reason for why we see a shift from large monastic communities, like Lindisfarne and others, to the much smaller communities that we see by the middle of the 800s. Large houses were enticing targets, but the smaller ones might go unnoticed. So, in the space of only a handful of decades, the way monks were living their lives changed radically, probably due to how they were being treated. Consequently, the council's decision didn't come out of nowhere. There was a very logical and valid reason for why they agreed to the change. However, this change also inverted the relationship between the monasteries and the bishops. It seems crazy to us now, but monasteries were actually higher on the ladder before this shift. Honestly, that's why the royal dynasties were stocking them with their extended family. But now they were getting demoted. So naturally, the royal families were a bit ticked off, as were some of the monks. But their frustration might seem like a surprise to you, at least on first glance, since they were being pulled away from their secular rulers and placed more directly under the care of bishops. I mean, despite the demotion, you might think that this would be welcomed with open arms, because it would put an end to their mistreatment. Unfortunately, simply because the bishops were within the church didn't mean that they were on the monk's side. In fact, Hayam makes the point that the monks might have initially accepted lay lordship in order to get away from the attentions of the local bishops. This makes sense, considering that the ecclesiastical leaders were coming from the same noble families as the lay leadership, and they were often being sent there not for pious reasons, but for political ones. So, to expect a bishop from this era to act in a fundamentally different way from a noble might be expecting a bit much. We're all products of our environment. Needless to say, the conflict between the bishops and the monastic communities ran deep. For the monasteries, there really wasn't a good option. They had problems with both secular and ecclesiastical rule. And yet, without doing anything wrong, these monasteries were being pulled away from one landlord and handed over to another, and it doesn't look like they were fond of either of them. Unfortunately, their desires weren't really all that important. Instead, they were pawns in a much bigger conflict, one between the Emperor of Mercia and the Archbishop of Canterbury. And they were being drawn into it because these religious houses were a major part of a kingdom's economic power. There was a lot of money to be made, well, seized, by whoever could control the communities. And the bishops had just won a major victory for their faction. And as they moved in, they instituted changes that would benefit them directly. For example, we see monasteries increasingly being staffed by priests and members of the secular clergy, rather than monks. It sounds crazy, but in some of these communities, the monks were being pushed out of power even though they were in their own monasteries. 
just like with secular matters, we're seeing factionalism and power grabs among the clergy. If you were just a pious monk and didn't want any part of these political and economic squabbles, it probably started to make a lot of sense to move to the smaller communities, where you'd be less of a target and would also require less significant degrees of infrastructure. So, it looks like that's exactly what they started doing. But let's not lose focus on what was happening politically with this council. The council directly challenged Emperor Comewolf's right to appoint people to lead nunneries and monasteries. Because yeah, that was Emperor Comewolf's job. And he had papal privileges from Popes Hadrian and Leo III that were given to Offa and himself to do exactly that. And now the council said he couldn't do it anymore. This wasn't a gray area. There wasn't any wiggle room. Archbishop Wolfrid had just formed a council and overturned his boss's decision on the matter, and declared that Conewolf no longer had the ancient right to appoint leaders to abbeys and monasteries, regardless of what the Pope had to say. The stone's on this guy, right? But Archbishop Wolfrid was in open conflict against Conewolf, and he might not have considered the full magnitude of what he was doing. He might have just been focused entirely on winning at this point. I think we've all met people who become completely irrational in a conflict, and rather than seeking a resolution, they just want to win at all costs. Reading the record, I wonder if Wolfrid was one of those kinds of people. Because he was shrugging off decades of precedence, and a rather clear command from the current pope, all because he wanted control over Reculver and Minster and Thanet. It's a hell of a thing. And considering that the properties were in Conewolf's family's hands, it wasn't like the emperor was going to surrender them lightly. If I was Wolfred's attorney, I would probably be telling him to take the win that he has. After all, he's got a lot of lands and money out of the emperor. So just let Conewolf keep those two properties to save face. Compromise. It's the key to any negotiation. But Wolfred was coming at this thing like an angry divorcee. It looks like what he wanted was total devastation and an uncontested victory no matter the cost. And just like in family law, when you take that position, everybody loses. And then, the final council at Chelsea ended. The gifts that Emperor Conewulf had been giving to Archbishop Wolfred over the last 12 years immediately stopped. No surprise there, right? But the Emperor went way farther than that. According to Richard North of University College London, Emperor Conewulf accused Wolfred of being involved in the murder of his son, Chinahelm. This wasn't a casual stoking of the rumor mill. He sent his accusations to the Vatican itself. Yeah, he was accusing the Archbishop of murder, or at least being complicit in murder, and he was sending those accusations directly to the Pope. And then, on the 12th of June, that same year, 816, Pope Leo III died. From the sounds of it, it was probably from stress. I mean, consider what that poor man had been dealing with. He got beaten up and nearly had his eyes and tongue torn out by a mob hired by the friends and family of his predecessor. He spent time on the lamb and had to live under the protection, and probably the thumb, of Charlemagne. And then right after Charlie died, he heard that maybe one of his archbishops was involved in a murder. That's a hell of a lot of stress for one person to handle. So, he died and Pope Stephen IV took over for about six months. And then he died. And he was only in his mid-40s. 
I'm telling you, this was a stressful job. And speaking of stressful jobs, we actually have some information about Wales from around this same time. And from the sounds of it, being the king of Gwyneth was no picnic either. For about the last three years, they had been racked with civil war. Their king, Kinnan ap Rodri, had just died. And Huel ap Caradog had taken the throne. But by the time he did, the war had already taken its toll. The kingdom was terribly weakened. And although Mercia was distracted with religious troubles, it wasn't going to lose a chance like this. And so they took the opportunity to ravage Cluid and Elwi and penetrated into Snowdonia itself. It's also possible that the Mercians took part in the Battle of Flanface on Mon, what we now know as Anglesey. So, spare a thought for poor King Huel of Gwyneth. He finally took the throne after that nasty civil war, only to be the guy in charge when the Mercians came running through, taking all their stuff. And once again, we're seeing a continuation of infighting throughout the island. There are dangers that are growing across the channel, but the most powerful kingdoms in Britain are fighting with each other, and fighting with the church, and even fighting with themselves. It's a mess. Then, on the 25th of January, 817, Pope Paschal I took charge. He had a lot to deal with, and undoubtedly he had numerous letters waiting for him from Emperor Conewulf, complaining about Archbishop Wolfred and probably a few going the other way, too. It was surprising what was happening in Britain. You had an archbishop who, on his own authority, was overturning the decisions of two of Pascal's predecessors. And then you had the accusations of the most powerful monarch on the island claiming that the archbishop was complicit in the murder of the heir apparent. That would be a pretty tough first day on the job. I imagine that there was a certain degree of bafflement regarding Wolfred's behavior considering that, like other southern archbishops, he had taken an oath to be obedient to his superiors. An oath that he apparently didn't take to heart. The Pope appears to have been conciliatory towards the secular English leadership, and confirmed Conewulf's privileges to appoint heads to religious houses, basically telling Wolfred, No, you can't override the Emperor of Mercia and the papacy just because you feel like it. What were you thinking? It didn't stop there, though. The archbishop was tossed out of power. The allegations that Conewulf made against the archbishop were seriously discussed in Rome. And in the end, Wolfrid was removed from the archbishopric. Hyam argues that this could have been due to Wolfrid's council at Chelsea, where he essentially overruled the papacy. North argues that this might have been due to the murder of Chinahelm. It's hard to say exactly why it happened since the records don't clearly state what the issue was. But whatever the case, Wolfred did lose his position, and he retreated to his estate at Einsham, which was disturbingly close to Conewulf's lands. There must have been an awful lot of awkward glaring going on in that neighborhood. But Wolfred wasn't going down without a fight. He still wanted to win, so it looks like he forged multiple royal privileges from Mercian and Kentish rulers that granted him rule over religious houses. Yeah, he forged privileges. The stone's on this guy, right? And he's not done yet. But we'll get to that next time. 
All right. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, everything. And you can find links to all of that in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs>